for that. Okay, we're in Revelation chapter 11. And um, I, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate what I see the book of Revelation doing. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, which if you haven't, you need to. John Bunyan, that's a classic. He just takes a metaphor and he describes the Christian life of some guy named Pilgrim who leaves the city of destruction, which would be the world, and makes his journey to the celestial city, which is entering into the kingdom of God. But all along the way, there are all these metaphors of his trials and struggles and difficulties, the slough of despond, the giant of despair, and all of the things that he struggled through until he ultimately has to cross that river and enter into the paradise of God. In the same way, I think the Bible is a great story of history. And you think of planet Earth, and, and here is God in his infinite wisdom making a very specific plan. I'm going to place a man on Earth, and he will rule under me forever and ever, and this will be my great paradise, and I will dwell with my people. But from the beginning, God had purposed and allowed that the heavenly beings would rebel. And then that infestation of rebellion would spread to planet Earth, and Adam and Eve would rebel and become corrupt. And then as you're reading the Bible, you're going, is this a tragedy? Sometimes it feels like a comedy. At times it feels like a mystery. But at the end, we learn that God's going to restore that paradise. But the means by which he's going to do that, we would have never seen that coming. And so in the, in the progress of Revelation, from the beginning, God didn't tell the whole story up front. As Pastor John said last week, some of it is a mystery. But as the prophets began to make predictions about what God was going to do, there began to be more clarity that God was going to send someone that would be called the Messiah and that the world would rage against him, but that ultimately the Messiah would rule with a rod of iron and he would take over the earth. But what no one saw coming was that the Messiah would reign through suffering. So one of the key chapters, and I don't want you to turn there right now, but I encourage you to read Daniel chapter 7, because Daniel chapter 7 has a very, very important passage in which Daniel sees a vision, and he says, in that vision, he sees God sitting on the throne. Very important here, he says this, in that vision, I kept looking, and he says, there was someone like a son of man, and that's Jesus. He was coming up to God, the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. So he sees God, and he sees one like the Son of Man. Now, he doesn't go, oh, that's Jesus, God's son, but that's who it is. Jesus comes up to him, and it says, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples might serve him. His kingdom will not pass away. And so you go, that's so cool. God's going to give the kingdom to his son, Jesus. Awesome. But then as you keep reading the chapter, God says to Daniel, but before that happens, there's going to be these awful beastly kingdoms that are going to rise up against God. And one of those beasts, Daniel says, I kept looking and he began to overpower the saints. And you're going, wait, what? Why would God let these evil forces overcome the king and his people? And then it says, until God came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. So the form of literature that Daniel used is called apocalyptic literature. It's all kinds of mysterious visions and dreams and dragons and not dungeons, but you get it. The idea then 
is that as, as John is unfolding this book, I want to mention some themes that I think you'll keep seeing as we're reading. First of all, we see Christ's sovereignty over history. Right from the beginning of the book, there's Jesus in the first chapter, Lord of lords and King of kings in control of all of history. Secondly, though, we saw this, that it was God's design to give the kingdom over to Christ. So remember in chapter 5, no one's worthy to open the book, but the, the lion has, has come and he takes the book. Jesus takes the title deed to earth and he's going to reign on the earth. Okay, good, Jesus, just reign. No, we'll wait. How was he able to reign on the earth? Through his death and resurrection. But then we see this theme that there's this constant opposition of the world and the devil to the plan of God for Christ to reign. And the world and the devil begin to apparently try to defeat the people of God. And so God, we're going to see, and we keep seeing through these trumpets and seals, that God at times afflicts temporal judgments on unbelievers. But the irony is, just as Christ died, which we would have never seen that coming, so increasingly in the book we see that God's people are getting more and more beat down, more and more persecuted until it almost appears as though God's people are going to be completely wiped out. But then just when we thought they were going to be wiped out, the Lord comes back. And he defeats all his enemies and he resurrects and brings all of the people of God into this eternal cosmos, this eternal new beautiful paradise where we'll dwell with him forever. So as we've been going through the book, we saw that the first way that John unfolded this was he showed seven seals. And we said some people read these as something that's going to happen in seven years in the future. Others go, no, these are what's going on from the time of Christ until the time of his return. God's letting wars, God's letting famines, plagues, afflict unbelievers to bring them to repentance. We then saw seven trumpets. And my suggestion is that these seven trumpets are the same thing. They're showing that God is allowing plagues and afflictions and harm to come to unbelievers. And so we saw these metaphorical visions of locusts, but we said that's demons. It was clear that these demons afflict the world. So now we come to this interlude in 10 and 11. We just finished the fifth seal. In chapter 10 and 11, as John said last week, there's this pause, and God says to, to John, here, take, take another look, a book here. We just saw this book. Take this little book and, and do it again. Prophesy again. So what we're going to look at in chapter 11 this morning, the big picture here is that God is going to show us several truths that, that he's told us. Number one, we already learned that he will mark and protect his people during the church age. Now think about that carefully. Remember when Austin showed us chapter 7? He says, put a seal on the people of God. Now, when I say mark and protect them, it doesn't mean they won't even die. It means that their souls will be kept forever. Nothing can separate them from God. So we've seen that theme of God marketing, marking and protecting his people. We've also seen the theme of God afflicting the world. Remember, they're cursing God and he's, he's putting these plagues and and metaphorically, the demons are like locusts stinging them and they, and they want to die because life is so bad. What we're going to see in this chapter is that God will use the church 
as an instrument to afflict the world. But then the third thing we're going to see is suddenly it looks as though the world wins. The, suddenly the church is apparently destroyed and the world's like, we won, we won. And then lastly, God comes on the scene and he goes, uh-uh. And he resurrects and turns things around and we have Christ returning. Now for some of you, you're like, I never thought it was that. I, I was told that in the final days, Moses and Elijah are going to be there for three and a half years. And as I said, that's a valid interpretation. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but listen to this perspective. Remember, there are major truths of the Bible that we can't differ on. We can't say, oh, Jesus isn't the only way. But how you read Revelation, some go, chapters 4 through 19 is only for the future, for, for seven years, and we're not going to be here. It's one view. The other view is that the entire book keeps repeating what's going to go on between the, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And it uses lots of symbolism, numbers and images. We're going to be introduced to an image of numbers now that, that I'm going to suggest is not meant to be taken literally. So let's look first of all, I'm going to call this first section the measuring of the temple. But what I think God means by this is the marking and protecting of his people. So, the Lord says to John at the end of 10, prophesy again. So John says, there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altars and those who worship in it. Now again, even that is like, which temple of God? The Bible describes the people of God as a temple. The Bible describes a real, literal, earthly temple. The Bible describes a heavenly temple. Which temple of God are we talking about here? So my suggestion is that this is a metaphor. To measure those who worship in it would be to mark and set a protection on all of those who are true believers. But outside of that, he says, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Again, you don't have to agree with this, but many would say this. Those who worship in it are the ones who are already in heaven, that great myriad of believers who have already been kept and called home to be with God. But we know what they're doing. What are those people up there doing? We read in chapter 6, how long, O Lord? Till you avenge us why are you letting your people keep getting beat on so when it says leave out the outer court it's it's believers that are still on the earth and the world is going to persecute us but in the midst of this god says i'm going to raise up a ministry of witnesses now again many people would say this is simple this is moses and elijah duh and i would say yeah that's a possibility. But it's not like anyone who doesn't see that is dumb or doesn't get it. So many theologians believe that the two witnesses here are really just another way of describing the church, just like they were described as the 144,000, just like they were described as a great myriad of saints from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So whether these are literally two people 
or whether it's the church, that's open for debate. Now, I'm going to suggest, and it is, there's problems no matter what you do, because I highly doubt if it's a person that literally Elijah is going to go, oh, and fire is going to go flying out of his mouth and kill half the earth. And they're just going to start turning the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean into blood. So I think these are metaphors, but read with me and see what you think. So I think what the Lord is saying is during this period where I have already called home some of my saints, I will use my people to afflict the world. We saw that clearly before that. The trumpets are not afflicting believers. They're afflicting unbelievers. So let's read. He says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now again, here's where you come to a fork in the road. Are these 1260 days literal, or is this symbolic of a period of time? Those who see it as literal, 1260 days are three and a half years. And there will be throughout this book phrases, 1260 days, 42 months, or times, time and a half time. Many would say, it's just three and a half years. But many others would say, that phrase is just symbolic for the church age. It was first used in Daniel when Daniel saw this whole thing, like, wait, you're, the son of man's going to reign, but yet the beast is going to take this. How long is it going to be? He goes, times, time, and a half time. So I'm going to suggest that times, time, and a half time, 42 months or 1260 days, is the church age. And you can go, ah, oh, it's ridiculous, and that's fine. Okay, but I'm not alone in that. So, and then it says they prophesy in sackcloth. Now again, does that mean that the church goes around, we have to wear sackcloth? No but we, we, we mourn and we call for repentance. And these two olive trees, two lampstands that stand before the earth, what is their role? Well, we're going to learn their role is to bear witness. Okay? So you go, what's the church's role? The church's role during this period is to bear witness to Christ. And the olive oil is the Holy Spirit empowering us. And this goes back to Zechariah chapter 4. Where in the same way when Zechariah prophesied of the rebuilding of the temple, God said, it won't be by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And it's in that chapter that we learn of the, the olive oil and the witnesses. So if anyone desires to harm them, and that's fine. If, if you want to picture Moses and Elijah sitting on a hill in Jerusalem going, I dare you to try to get me, that's fine. I think that's a real possibility. On the other hand, it may just be saying, this is the church. And when it says fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies, and if anyone would desire to harm them, in this manner he must be killed. These have power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, real quick, let me just say this. If you've been following the book, we keep seeing imagery from the exodus and the plagues, right? Locusts, frogs, water to blood. So are these all literal? Is Moses going to walk over to the sea and go, now the ocean's blood? Maybe. Or are these all symbolic? Because almost all of these things that are mentioned here, like killing people, shutting up the sky with, with famine, plagues, turning the water into blood, 
we've already seen the exact same phrases of the trumpets. And we saw that in the seals. God's going to do harmful things on the earth to bring affliction to unbelievers, to bring them to repentance. This doesn't mean the church sits around and we pray and we go, kill everybody, Lord. But God has used the church. Picture when Moses came across the Red Sea and then God said, I'm swallowing Egypt in the sea. So, we have the, the, the ministry of these witnesses is to trouble the world, like sackcloth, to prophesy, to bear witness, to call the earth to repentance. But now we have the murder of these witnesses, and this is the apparent triumph of the world. Now, whether it's literal or whether it's the church, the idea is it looks as though the devil's going to win. It looks as though the wicked witch doesn't die, but, but she kills Dorothy. So let's read. When they have finished their testimony, which again, in my mind would be when the church has proclaimed the gospel to every nation, as Jesus said, and as it said in Revelation, just quiet down until those who have been called to die will die. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And again, you're going, every time I turn around, there's something new here, okay? This is the first mention of a beast coming out of the abyss, okay? This will be described in detail in chapter 13. It's an individual, but it's also, in the book of Daniel, a kingdom. In Daniel, the beast is clearly a final kingdom against God, all right? So... In my mind, and, and, and this is how I read it, is what it's saying is at the end, there will be a massive slaughter of Christians. The Bible tells us as history goes forth, those of you who have bright optimism that someday the world's going to get converted, I need to burst that bubble. The world's not going to get converted. The world's going to be increasingly persecuted. And at the end, there's only going to be a remnant left alive because so many of them are going to be slaughtered by this evil world. It shouldn't surprise us that people are being killed for Christ. What should surprise us is that we have a whole country where people aren't being killed for Christ. Because the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He's the king of the darkness. The world's in rebellion against God. Why wouldn't they want to kill us? And so at, at this point in the future, there will be this massive destruction of the people of God. And so, verse 8 says, their dead bodies will lie in the street. Now again, you could go, this is just talking about two guys, and Charles Ryder would say, you know, all the television cameras are, are showing Elijah laying there, he bled out. There's Moses, the Ten Commandments are broken beside him. That's possible. But is this just symbolism, just saying, it looks like the church has lost. It looks like Satan has won. And notice the world, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. And they will send gifts to one another because these prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Is it too hard to imagine that the world, as it gets increasingly more evil, would celebrate the destruction of Christianity? Is that hard to imagine? I mean, you look around and you see the hatred and the hostility that the world has towards the church as it is. I remember the first time I picketed an abortion clinic. I was stunned 
at the way which people came at me, pulled up, cursing me out with hatred and hostility. Is it that hard to imagine that the world will grow in its hatred of Christianity? Why? Because we remind them of coming judgment. Paul said that. We're, we're the ministry of death. Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. So at the end, if, if evil abounds and most Christians are killed, why wouldn't they celebrate? But that's when God steps in. It says in verse 11, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. Now again, you could go, is this literal? You know, was it 72 hours plus 12? Was it exactly 84s in? Everyone's watching them on TV, and then Elijah goes, I'm back, maybe. But on the other hand, could this be that when Christ returns, the dead are suddenly resurrected? You go, how are you going to connect this with, with the return of Christ? Please, we'll keep reading. Immediately when they're resurrected, it says, then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. Now, is that just Moses and Elijah, or is that the church? Wait, so you're saying at the end of time, God is going to resurrect all the dead Christians and call them to come up here? Well, yeah, and I'm pretty sure we would all agree on that, right? That in the end, the dead in Christ rise, the Lord returns, and he brings his saints up to meet them in the air, okay? And you're like, yeah, now, now we agree, Tom. This is seven years before the tribulation. I'm going... Maybe, but I don't see that. When is the church taken up to heaven? Right before the return of Christ. You say, no, 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 there's a seven-year period. Well, maybe, but look what it says. It says, they went up to heaven, and in that hour there was a great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell. And again, I think these are symbols. I don't think, I don't think God's gone, in this earthquake, I want one cinder block to fall on that guy's head, that guy's head, and when it hits exactly 7,000 people, then don't let anybody else die. I think these are symbols. A lot of people are going to die. We know at the second coming there's a massive earthquake. And you go, well, Pastor Tom, how do you get the second coming here? How do you get the second coming? Well, keep reading. The second woe is past, the third woe is coming. The seventh angel sounded. And there arose loud voices in heaven. Why? Because the Lord just came. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fall on their faces and worship God. And they said, we give thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were enraged. When you read the, this book, you're going to see the kings of the earth are hostile, and at the end, they're going to want to fight against God. The nations were enraged. Your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged and the reward to be given to the saints and the small and the great and to destroy those who dwell on the earth. And so we're going to stop at that verse and you go, my head's spinning. It's all right. Just take a deep breath. So if, you, if you're gone, you know what? I just think it's a lot easier to just go. I just think sometime in the future, I'm not going to be here God's going to put Moses and Elijah on the earth. The world's going to hate them. They're going to call fire and blood and so forth. And then somebody's going to kill them. And then God's going to raise them up on TV. And the world's going to go, wow, it's all right. That's a new view. Okay. Or both are true. 
that God has promised that he will protect his people, not necessarily from death, but from eternal death. And during the time of this age, the saints will suffer from the rage and wrath of the devil and the world. And in the end, as time goes on, it's going to get worse. And the world will rage against God and his people and kill a lot of them. And just as they're celebrating the removal of Christianity, and finally we can all join hands as atheists and say, we are God, we are God, God says, that's enough. That's enough. And he raises the church from the dead, calls them up to heaven. And the Lord Jesus comes in flaming fire, Revelation 19, riding on a white horse. And he defeats all those who have raged against him. And he throws the devil and all those who are opposed to him in the lake of fire. And those who believe enter into this beautiful eternal kingdom. Is that true or is that not true? Both of them are true. Do you read it here? Either way, here's what I want to leave you with. It's kind of a, a simple thought, but one that we can celebrate. The saints win the victory through our apparent loss. Let me say it again. Christians win the final victory through our apparent loss. It's like we're in the ring and we just got knocked out. And the devil's like, yes. Jesus won the victory through his apparent loss. Okay? So let that sink in. We're going to win the victory no matter what. Even if we have to die, the saints win the victory through their apparent loss. And God's enemies, ready for this, lose even if there's an apparent victory. You go, moral majority of Christianity, it has to be the most popular thing on the earth. No, it doesn't. The devil and the world can massively come against Christianity and do everything they can to kill and suppress it. And they will think, we won. And God's going to go, no, your apparent victory is actually a great loss. And so for us as Christians today, I don't like what's going on in our country but I'm not hiding in a corner in the fetal position going, what's going to happen? The Lord Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if the saints are persecuted and suffer, if Christianity becomes less and less popular and the world begins to afflict us and many of us lose our lives, the saints' apparent loss is really our victory. Because one day the Lord Jesus is going to say, come up here and at that last trumpet the dead in Christ rise and we're caught up to be with the Lord and I can tell you this the Bible says comfort one another with these words we win because he won you say but that's so weird how do you win through losing the same way he did oh no who can open the book Jesus why because he overcame through the cross so why would he not say join me in taking up your cross and join me in the final victory and the resurrection of all those whom I've called to myself. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this great truth that the lamb who was slain is the lion who will reign. And Lord, we don't know what the future holds except that we know trouble lies ahead because the Bible tells us that. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Next week, Pastor John will show us
that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Thank you for this great mystery that even though the world would love to eradicate us and they would celebrate our defeat, we know that Jesus wins and we know we belong to him. And until that time, we just read, they need to finish their witness. Help us to finish our witness by living for Christ, by living a godly life, and by sharing our faith with others and praying to protect our children from this godless world. Thank you for our church. May we move forward together in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.